Hello and welcome to Outside World Occultism. My name's Lavender and with me today are Ni. Hi. F. Hello. Katya. Hello. And this cardboard cutout of JT. <laughs> <laughs> we should have added a real one or a clone back with us soon enough. There's been an unfortunate incident with large tropical trees, but there's no need to worry about that. Today we were supposed to be talking about Legacy of the United Kingdom. I guess it was kind of inspired by the space themes last time. Yeah. We didn't really have a specific tie-in into it. Yeah, we just kind of yeah. were like, hey, well, that game came out pretty recently. Let's talk about it. Um, yeah, yeah, skipping it's... over, like, Hidden Star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, okay, so we've talked a lot about Hidden Star in Four Seasons just, like, over the course of, like, several We've just yeah. kind of been vaguing it. Yeah, yeah kind of ranting about instead it. Instead of actually talking about it, whereas Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom, we haven't got given a lot of attention, even as vague posting. Yeah, so yeah. at some point we'll probably do a Hidden Star in Four Seasons episode, but today let's talk about Lolke. Yeah, we're kind of winging the topics in case it isn't obvious. <laughs> Oh no, guys, we planned these all five months in advance, I assure you. Yeah. Like, lol K has one of... <laughs> lol K. Lol K. I'm, not, I'm still not used to saying it out loud. It ha- it has one of the more, like, involved plots, to be honest. Like, it's yeah. kind of complicated, even. This was the game that got me back into Toho. Because, like, I was into Toho as, like, a teenager. And then I kind of dropped out of the fandom for a while. And then one day I saw somebody posting an image of Hikatia. Hikatia is good. And just like freaking out about like, there's no way this new Toho is real. And I was like, oh my god, I need to check this out. Hikatia real. Yeah, Hikatia was extremely (laughs) real. And that's what got me back into Toho. And here I am, several years later, still into Toho. I got Hmm. into Toho actually like two months after the game released. So I have kind of a similar story, except I wasn't into it earlier. I think I kind of, by coincidence, got into, like, properly into the fandom around the same time, but I didn't even know that there was a new game out. (laughs) I remember spending, like... 70 hours trying to beat normal point device mode. Oh my god, normal, (laughs) wow. That's very brave of you. I didn't like easy because I couldn't graze for lives well enough. Oh, Uh wow. Yeah. Pro gamer over here. (laughs) There weren't (laughs) enough bullets! They all moved so fast that I couldn't ever get to the thresholds. Easy mode is Mm -hmm. just too casual for me. (laughs) Stop! literally can't handle it because it doesn't have enough bullets. Oh no, I can handle it on literally every other game. Sometimes <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. like to have bombs though because there's clowns. So obviously LOL K had this new point device mode. Which I am glad they that wasn't what happened moving forward because we thought that it would be for a while. Soon was basically inspired by this like super hard die a million times games like he specifically name drops i wanna be the guy in the <laughs> afterward oh my god but he also mentions that he never wants to do it again because it was a huge pain to like play test this really is the dark souls of because Toho. it's pretty easy to just get yourself stuck in point device mode since Sometimes you absolutely can't dodge something, and sometimes you're out of bombs. 
Yeah, and the thing is that when you make something that's supposed to be really hard, supposed to take like three dozen attempts, then you, the playtester, also need to make like three dozen attempts to make sure that it's doable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took me a lot more than three dozen attempts to beat that game. Yeah, I mean, yeah. fair. So obviously the whole plot of the game already starts like with, with Urban Legend in Limbo. Just thinking about those orbs? <laughs> yeah. So we should probably do a summary of what the plot actually is. Yeah, I think in chronological order. Did Urban Legend and Limbo come out before? Yeah, Limbo came out on in May and then Legacy of the Kingdom came out in August. So obviously mm-hmm. that must have been a pretty interesting release schedule. Yeah. But uh, anyway, do we start at the beginning beginning? We should probably start with Zumireko's orb collection spree and why the orb collection spree happened to involve the moon. Yeah, yeah, so this whole plotline is, I think, one of the most protracted plotlines in Toho, and it's just kind of... It's still kind of happening. It's had, like, three games of real estate now to itself, basically. Yeah, and the, and the third was kind of a side effect, like... Oh, oops, you can possess people now. That was completely accidental. Yeah, like, the plot itself was kind of solved, but then the use involved in the incident were just left lying around, and now everyone's causing trouble with them. Yeah, so let's talk about the orbs. The orbs, the occult balls. Yeah, so basically Sagume, who is obviously one of the bosses in Lolke, created the orbs with her vaguely defined powers. Well, she created an orb. Didn't she make them all? Did she? I thought the lunar (laughs) capital orb was a fake one. I don't know. (laughs) God damn it. Well, I suppose the fact that you gather all seven and they grant a wish was an urban legend and that was given power by Sagame, but I don't know if, like, the orbs themselves related to the outside world power spots were created by Sagame? I think so. I thought there was this whole thing about the orbs themselves somehow running on Sagume's power of affecting reality with her words. I know the urban legend incident runs on Sagame's power, but I don't know about the orbs. Yeah, I don't know if the orbs were just random glass balls lying around and then Sagume found them and figured they looked neat. It's free orb. (laughs) But yeah, the point is that the orbs have this power to obviously warp reality based on people's beliefs and urban legends. It's basically you put Gensokyo's what is believed in becomes reality on steroids. Yeah. And the whole point of the exercise from Sagume's point of view was that one of the orbs represented the myth that the moon landing was faked and all that. And that it was faked in order to hide something on the moon. By spreading this urban legend in Gensokyo, they could relocate the lunar capital onto Earth. Doesn't make that much sense in hindsight, but that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> I think it was kind of a last ditch effort. And the reason they were doing it because Junko and Hecatia are mounting this invasion of the moon, apparently already at this point. I guess that means it lasted for a pretty long time. They've been doing it for around a year by the time the orb is created. So the lunar yeah, capital okay. was under siege. I think we are probably going to have to like devote a whole episode to the lunar capital at some point. Maybe if we talk about <laughs> Bogetsu show. Yeah, that's its whole own kind of worms. Yeah, so that requires a bit of background. Like, the moon is like this sort of very yeah. isolationist society that is like almost lifeless. It is completely lifeless. If there is life there, that's a threat to the existence of the Lunarians. At least they that's what they think. 
I mean, it technically is a threat to them living forever, but living forever isn't a very fulfilling existence. Yeah, so in Shinto, there's this concept of kegare, which is literally translated as like impurity, I guess, or like but the concept is more like uncleanness. The basic activities of life are all infused with uncleanness. It's basically the reason that you wash your hands when you're going to make artifacts for a shrine if you work at one. I don't know if this is standard at shrines, but there's actually a gigantic Shinto shrine here in Washington State, and they have like... The Tsubaki Grand Shrine, right? Yeah. Um, And I haven't visited it yet, but I really want to. I plan on going sometime, probably during like a major celebration. But there's like a procedure for like washing your hands and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's a common one. But yeah, anyway, from the Lunarius point of view, the thing is that they can live forever as long as they don't actually get tainted with life or death, which is why they moved under the moon, which is a completely lifeless world, and then sealed it off. Basically, life is impure because the basic mundane activities of life are all heavily infused with Kegare. And also life is impure because to live means to die. Yes. Yeah. Life is full of blood and nastiness and fluids and all kinds of nasty stuff. And ultimately it ends in death and that's why it's impure. And that's why the Lunarians can't have that if they're going to live, air quotes, forever. Yeah, the invasion plan that Jinko and Hakatia come up with is to empower a bunch of fairies and just send them to the moon. Because fairies are essentially the embodiments of Kegare with their constant rebirth and death. Yeah. The embodiments of Scarlet Devil. (laughs) No, No, fairies are actually good. (laughs) Ouch. Especially clown piece. Yes. Anyway, there's the siege going on and so... They have no way to fight it because they are at least afraid of dying if they go even near the things. Which is silly because it won't kill you, it'll just make you vulnerable to dying. Yeah, but I mean, close enough. So they went and almost destroyed Gensokyo because relocating the lunar capital to Gensokyo would mean turning it into a place of purity, which would mean killing all life there. Yeah. Yeah. It would just turn it, Gensokyo, into, like, essentially the moon. Moon too! <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, it's a kind of underappreciated fact that they sent this, like, spider robot. I actually I forgot about the spider robot. Yeah, no one ever mentions it. How could you? <laughs> so I she loved the spider robot because I've... it was just, like, out of a sci-fi show. That's what mm. I remember about it. Yeah, I think it's a weird that even like fan artists, I don't think I've seen a single depiction of the spider. Well, we haven't really like seen anything relating to how it looked. Yeah, but I mean, not even like in fan works or anything. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. always under the impression that it resembled an American like Lunar Lander. Yeah, but also a spider for some reason. I thought you were just going to say that it resembled an American. <laughs> The Sunai says that it looks like a the Curiosity Rover. Oh, okay. yeah. But I'm I'm not sure why it would like why would they do that and how does someone call the Curiosity Rover a spider? When was the Curiosity Rover launched? It was launched after Sunai came to Gensokyo. That means that she knows about the Curiosity Rover from Sumireka. 
not from her own viewing of it. It was launched so. November 26, 2011. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So now we know that Sinai <laughs> has never seen a TV broadcast of Curiosity. <laughs> what a loss. <laughs> Damn, that was a mystery. No one expected to be solved. <laughs> Sorry, because I just remembered it being launched when I was about to go into middle school. It was just very confusing to me that, wait, how long have you been here, Sanai? <laughs> um, is Curiosity the one that shut down recently? No, that is Opportunity. Spirit and Opportunity got to Mars in like 2002, 2003, let me check. So this is the first major tangent of this episode, I guess. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just love space. It's fine. You're so valid. June 10th, 2003. What were we talking about? That there was a giant spider that looked like the Curiosity rover on Earth, thanks to the Lunarians. I'm wondering if it was literally like a giant spider, like stomping around with spider legs, or if that was just like... Might have just been what the yokai thought of it. Might have not been, because the urban legend incident could have made it into an actual spider. I think it's more likely that someone who has never seen a rover would call a rover a spider than for Sanae to call a spider a rover. Yeah, because we know what lunar capital scientific technology looks like because of that one chapter where Reimu lugs around like a satellite dish to look for tears in It looks space. almost exactly like NASA technology, which I find very amusing. Yeah. Mm. I wonder who stole from who. <laughs> I, I absolutely love the idea that like NASA and the American government stole lunar capital technology. <laughs> Would they not? Would they not do In that? In order to get to the moon. <laughs> I mean, that's an adventure and a half. Anyway, the point of the drone was to like literally killing everything around it, killing the trees and all that. So obviously that was a bad thing. Not good. It was not good. Yeah. Was the and then, so was that the invasion or um There were also was, the rabbits. Yeah, it was that and the rabbits. Just the two. Sarah yeah. and Ringo are the best rabbits in Toho and you cannot change my mind. I love them. <laughs> Let's talk about the characters then. Didn't we establish like democratically that Saron was the top rabbit, yeah? Yes. Yes. <laughs> we already said that they're Gay and run rival Dango stands. Yeah. yeah. And they, oh yeah, they used to be in like the lunar equivalent of the special forces. Yeah, and yeah. that's how you encounter them. They're invading. But when I played through with Reimo, there's like, you know, an amusing bit where Seiron is like talking to someone on like a radio or whatever. And Reimo's like, who are you talking to? I guess she just doesn't remember some training in animism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, Moon rabbits have this telepathy thing, right? Yeah, they have telepathy. They don't really need radios. Which is why it's so silly that Seiran is talking out loud. <laughs> <laughs> she just always says whatever's in her head. <laughs> That's yeah, cute. The rabbits have been sent to Gensokyo to, like, I don't know, secure a beachhead while the drone does its thing. Obviously, the protags have to go in and beat them up and figure out why they're here. They found out that the base of the moon rabbits was under the lake, Yukai Mountain, which mm. probably made Kanako feel pretty insulted, considering <laughs> who chained up Takamina Kata. Yeah. 
I like how, like, basically, as soon as you defeat the rabbits, they're just like, okay, okay, I give up. I'll tell you everything. Yeah. Absolutely zero, like, uh, zero resistance on their part. Yeah. In Seiran's case, it's like, no, they'll kill me if I tell you that our base is at the lake. (laughs) 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 Which is maybe even worse. It was an accident. She didn't mean to. Yeah, like, plausible deniability. Exactly. I don't know how much there is to say about the rabbits aside from that. Like, they're just kind of the tip of the spear. They're the cute gays to go with the other two gay couples in Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Saga! (laughs) So should we move on to Doremi? Yeah, so the rabbits are coming through through this passageway that passes through the dream world, which I think is the first we see of the dream world. It is. It is in the Windows games, yeah. I wonder how to connect into the PC and ID at Canon anyway, but... Probably it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, but... You could just say... It's the same dream world. Mugetsu and Gengetsu were just kind of hanging out there, doing their thing. And then yeah, they like... claim to be rulers of the world because everybody in early Toho claims to be the ruler of the world. Yeah, I guess Yuka, like, pulled a suika and just built a house there and no one was able to throw her out. Maybe Dormi likes the company. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've established that Yuka is the greatest social butterfly in all of Gensokyo. Hi, I thought she was a social flower. Yeah, yeah social flower. There we go. The social sunflower. Always facing the party. <laughs> I think there's always been a bit of confusion about what exactly Dormi's role is in the dream world. Yeah, it's... Her title is kind of ambiguous on it. She basically just manages literally everything in the dream world with her 5,000 hers. (laughs) Yeah, she can like split up infinitely, I guess. But I mean, that's not so special. I mean, every god can theoretically do that if they're like enshrined to a different place or summoned or... Yeah, but she can do it on her own without even having to be enshrined. Laundry can do it. She's basically all powerful in the dream world, except, well, it's just a dream. It's not real. (laughs) Bonjo can also split into multiple copies of herself which obviously means that she is the best and strongest Toho, yeah? (sighs) Yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um. Hmm. But yeah, I mean I don't think it was ever specified how they like got Dormi on board with this whole plan Um, Maybe her girlfriend just sweet-talked her Yeah, I mean, obviously I think that's part of it gets involved, like, shipping Dor- Sagume and Doremi obviously gets involved a lot, but I don't think it's, there's, like, any... Yeah, I don't think that that's, like, the actual merit. I think that it's probably just... Doremi's really kind of laissez-faire. She just lets yeah. you do whatever as long as it doesn't bother her. Yeah, Sagume probably just did on her own. Yeah, she was just like, there's a lunar capital in my house now, okay. Yeah. Do, huh? do you mind if I leave this here? Oh, I don't mind. There's literally infinite space. (laughs) I don't actually remember what Dormi says when you, like, fight her. Like, why does she even end up fighting you? She's fighting you to stop you from going mad because you went to the lunar capital in your dreams. Oh, I see. With a physical body. Oh, yeah, Yeah. that's right. I remember her being like, wait, what are you doing in here? You're a real person. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't mention that the whole thing is that while the siege is going on, so that the people on the moon couldn't notice, like Sagume and presumably some of her helpers, I guess. Possibly the royalty of the moon as well, maybe. Yeah, 
but they re- they relocated the whole lunar capital to uh, to the dream world. Because why not? Most people are non divisor and they want to solve it before they become divisor. Because most of the lunarians would probably go off the shit if they realized. <laughs> Just yeah. a bit. I do like that her name can be interpreted either as like dreamy. Or uh, Doremi as like musical. Never, never forget the all caps Google translation of her name as Dreamy Sweet, as in <laughs> Dreamy Sweet is her candy form, where the <laughs> yeah sweet as in hotel room. The pink orb is like cotton candy or something. What is the pink orb anyway? Is that like dreams? It's a dream. Yeah, she eats those. It's right. a blob. Because she's a Baku. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Baku are more of a like benevolent character, I guess. Well, I think they really are more neutral. Kind of like foxes, except more on the good side than the nasty side. Yeah, they eat dreams, but they like specifically eat nightmares, I guess, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, unless they're just a nasty little rude boy. And nobody likes nightmares, obviously, so they're not doing much harm. I always had the impression that Baku were kind of up to no good, because my only exposure to the concept was the Pokemon Drowsy and Hypno. Um, <laughs> yeah. And those, those guys are kind of creepy and weird. You get both sides of the Baku with Hypno and then Muna and Musharna. Yeah, true. Oh, that's yeah, right. True. Them too. So, like, you get the nice Baku and then you get the nasty Baku. Hmm. But which one is Doremi? Hmm. I think she's nasty. <laughs> oh, 100%. But she's like chill nasty. She's mischievous. She's just a little nasty. I mean, she has a, a permanent cat face that makes her mischievous by default. You know, nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> yeah. I regret bringing this up. Why do you guys always make me regret bringing things up? Why am I here? Because I am the curse on this world. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I don't guess there's that much to say about the dream world or Doremi in this context. Yeah, it's only really relevant in Antonomy of Common Flowers, ironically enough. I think you can kind of tell that we're excited to talk about the end of the game more than the beginning. That's because it's gay. (laughs) Before we move on, I have a very important question to ask. Does Doremi's hair go all the way to the end of her hat? Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm sure of it. (laughs) In the Wily Beast and Weakest Creature episode, I was going to talk about how much I appreciate Saki's long ponytail, but I think Doremi might have her beat. Yeah, I think Doremi has a, a bit more pizzazz. Yeah, I think the hat like grows with her ha- hair. If her hair get gets longer, then their hat gets too. But uh, as usual, like stage four is where the big stuff gets happening, and you actually get some explanation of what's going on. Thanks, demo versions. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the plots would be like if the de- if the demos didn't have to exist. You probably still have stage one and two, but I feel like three, four, five, six would all be plot, as opposed to just four, five, six. Yeah, I mean, having the demos is obviously nice for it, the reasons of having a demo. But, but it's also kind of empty, because it's if it wasn't full of nothingness, it would spoil half the game, so... Yeah, it's not like hugely misleading in a low-case case, because, I mean, you are still going to the moon, but the big twist is that after you beat up Sagume, she uses her vaguely defined power that I'm sure we all have a completely different take on if we start comparing it. 
I couldn't even begin to explain it, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, after you beat her, she decides that she'll use you to take care of Junko and Hikaria instead. Yeah, and then you go fight a clown. Yeah, that is how it works. <laughs> but yeah, Sagume, I think she is very cool and gay, and I like her a lot. Yeah, I like her for some reason, too. Maybe it's just her Lunarian charisma or something. Even though she's kind of both an Amatsukami and a Kunitsukami. Yeah, I like that she is literally... She's not, like, based on a figure from folklore. She is the figure from folklore. Like, she is literally Ame no Sagume. I feel like a lot of the people in Toho are literally XYZ. They're just Zune's particular takes on it, so people think yeah. it's just based on XYZ. Yeah, but the thing with Amino Sagume is that... She has, like, two lines. Her whole role is really, like, short and nondescript. Yeah, she told, um... Amewaka Some guy Amewaka? in the Kojiki. Yeah, like, shoot a bird. And shooting the bird made Amaterasu pissed off at the guy. The arrow was, like, thrown back down and killed him. And Sagume was so embarrassed about it that she has taken a vow of silence. That's really the only way I can interpret her being super careful with her words now. Either that or maybe she was cursed to only tell lies after she told that lie. Yeah, so yeah. in Toho, her background has kind of mutated into this ability that is... The power to, like, ruin plans, I guess, by uh, talking about them. Yeah, reverse the situation with her words. It's basically that if she says something that she's involved in will happen, the universe will bend over backwards to make it not happen. That's one of the, like, most workable definitions we have. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to interpret the universe will bend over backwards to make stuff not happen. Honestly, her power is one of those places where we just kind of have to... Throw up our hands and go, yeah. Yeah, we kind of have to assume that if she didn't do something with her power, it's because she couldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we really have no idea how the power works, and it's confusing, and it's probably not going to get any less confusing. Zoom loves to not explain anything. There's a lot of people who are like, why didn't she just say, oh, the Lunar Capital's invasion won't be successful or whatever? Because that would be boring and not interesting. Why would anyone want to see it happen that way, first of all? Sagame's power is plot convenient. In the end, it doesn't matter. That's just not how it played out. Yeah, so basically what happens is that she tells you about her plan to invade Gensokyo, and she's kind of like wagering on the idea that the reason the plan doesn't happen is that you get rid of Junko and Akatia. And I guess that's actually exactly what ends up happening. Yeah, yeah. but first you have to fight a clown. Yeah, you're kind of fixated on the clown, huh? <laughs> That Pierrot. I just love Clown Piece. She's so dumb. She's baby. <laughs> She's baby. <laughs> Before we move on to Clown Piece, the other thing I wanted to say is that like this like weird reversal power of Sagume kind of um the term Amanojaku also comes from uh the name of Amenosagme. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so in this context, the like sort of reversal power also has a link there. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that Seiji just like recognizes her in Grimoire of Usami. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And just like, oh my god, it's the Ame no Sagame. It's my star. It's the celebrity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the surnames are really similar to Kishin and Kitchen. Oh my god, I did not even think about that until just now. There's a lot of random fan art depicting them as, for instance, a mother and child or whatever. And lot, lots of fan works with that team too. She is kind of the mother of 
Amanojaku in like a symbolic sense. Yeah. He's a big shot in the Amanojaku community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they both kind of have the reversal and also kind of lying theme going on. But Sagome has a single wing, which makes her so much more cooler. It makes her excellent and kind of emo. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's been endless one-winged angel jokes. I agree. I like her design overall. The jacket is nice. The arrow skirt is maybe kind of weird, but it's nice. It's just a very, very shredded dress. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Zagume, as a final note, she's like one of those early Toho characters who have these weird, really broadly defined powers. Like Yukari-style manipulating boundaries that people assume can end the world and kill anyone on sight. And she is kind of in the same category that's actually become a lot less common over this series. And I feel like Zune kind of both moved on from having everybody be overpowered and he also introduced most of his important big shots early on. Yeah. So you only usually get like maybe a final boss with a really broken power nowadays. Like somebody like Okina is a lot less common than basically the entire cast of Embodiment of Scarlet Devil being stupidly broken. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, and obviously that's like Miko is this prime example of a really powerful character with a really like seemingly mundane power. I think that it's just basically what the characters are proudest of that yeah yeah like saying their power is like sometimes your power is to literally control lightning but you just want to say i can talk to animals (laughs) (laughs) yeah and even if your actual most useful combat ability is to shoot big lasers then you take one look at Gensokyo and realize that you need something a bit more unique. Yeah, so I think it's important to remember when talking about like the weird abilities or whatever on character profiles is that all of those are basically like self-declared. Like if someone just like asked the character to talk about their cool power and they're like, oh, this cool power that I love to talk about. I can control fate. <laughs> yeah, or like the Ramos is just the ability to fly in the air. Yeah, man, you can sure do that. Yeah, like, it's so not indicative of everything that she's capable of, but it's something that she can do, and she's very proud of it, I guess. Yeah. We don't really see the characters just, like, flying through the air that much in print work and stuff, so we don't really get to see their feelings about that very often. <laughs> see how it's, like, remarked upon, I guess. Yeah, it turns out they only fly in the games because soon thought it looked weird to animate them walking. <laughs> <laughs> I think they just mostly fly because... They don't like having to walk when they have to go somewhere fast because Gensoku is not the best place to traverse on two legs. Yeah. Mm. Considering it's the middle of a forest. Yeah. I mean, now that I think about it, in the games, you're like constantly swamped with fairies and all these other fuzzballs in the air. Maybe flying makes you a giant target. <laughs> I mean, it probably does. If you're powerful enough, you're going to end up with fairies running after you and shooting at you. Imagine Raymond just flying to a grocery store and just being <laughs> mobbed by fairies the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never again. I mean, the only time I think we see them fly in a print work besides when they're fighting is when they fly up to Yokai Mountain to look for Kasuzu. 
There's mm. a couple other times. Specifically, the ones I'm thinking of is when Sanae comes to visit, she just kind of floats down from the air sometimes next to Reimu and is like, oh, hey, what's up? Oh, yeah, she does that a lot. Probably because it's not as mundane of a thing for her, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. She's just I mean, like, whoa, I can fly. I mean, I would fly all the time. Yeah, me too. Another standout moment in Forbidden Scrollery to me is when Marisa hears some like hubbub going on on the other side of a wall. And she jumps it instead of flying over it. Instead of just like flying <laughs> over it, she like winds up and does like a freaking track and field style leap over the wall. Just parkours right over instead of just like mm. flying, which is something that she's perfectly capable of doing. It's mm-hmm. just what she does. I guess that attitude towards flying in general should also be applied to just character abilities in general. Like, just because they have, like, some weird reality warping ability or whatever doesn't necessarily mean that it's, like, th- their main thing or even, like, what they care about the most. Like, Miko, we just talked about, like, her ability is the ability to listen to ten people at once or something like that. And, like, that makes sense for that to be an ability that she personally is proud of because she's, like, a ruler. She she spent a lot of time in, like, a royal court just, like, listening to ministers and so on. And so that was something that was very helpful to her personally for, like, ruling a kingdom. But it's got nothing to do with, like, her, like, awesome Taoist wizard powers. Yeah, it kind of leaves out the air quote relevant part, but I like it. I do really like stage four also, I wanted to say. Yeah, it's really pretty. Yeah, it's a very pretty stage. I wish we could see the lunar capital more in general, Mm. but I guess that's not really the sort of thing you'd see considering our protagonists kind of don't like it a lot. Yeah, and we've already had a print work focused on it. Mm -hmm. It's just too bad that that took place outside of the capital. Yeah, fingers crossed for the next manga. I'm really not sure how that would work. Please, Mr. Zoon, please. <laughs> but uh, stage four, it has like, it's basically all these yin-yang orbs, isn't it? Yeah, it's... there's nothing alive. You don't even like see, okay, obviously you don't see people like on the ground in any Toho stage really, but for some reason it really stuck out to me in stage four specifically. Well, that's probably because it's set in the city. You don't have any other stages set in like the human village or anything. Well, you do have the old hell capital. Stage two of double dealing character, but even then that's not like a place you'd expect people to see walking around. It's a disused industrial area. Yeah, especially when yokai are going crazy like that. Yeah, so yeah. I think in combination with the yin-yang orbs and the complete absence of, like, fairy enemies and that kind of thing, it really does lend the feeling to, like, oh, this place is totally empty right now. Yeah. And in general, really, I think it's always empty. Even if there's, like, bustle and stuff, it's still empty. Yeah, that makes sense. Should we move on to the three characters that I think everyone's been waiting to talk about? <laughs> Let's do it. Yes. Let's talk about yes, Hell let's Family. Do Clown Peace. Where to begin with Clown Peace? She's a good girl. She's a very good the girl. The best girl. She's my daughter. She's my daughter, too. She's everyone. What a coincidence. How come you have every single lesbian on Earth as your mom? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it to be a little more serious about that 
I don't know, the Clown Pieces character is very fascinating in the manga because what we've got from fairies so far that have, like, actual personalities is that they're just very, like, mischievous and contrary and love to cause trouble. And then Clown Piece is completely innocent and rule, you know, follows the rules generally until somebody explains to her that she doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we have Hell as a place of ultimate lawlessness, according to uh, Makadia. So is being lawful being contrary in hell? Huh? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. That's some real sage logic right there. She's the most fairy-like of fairies, but from a different kind of place. Mm-hmm. It's really hmm. funny that Clown Peace is such a good girl when her own personal self-declared ability is driving people to madness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's just kids. It's just baby. <laughs> I haven't actually gotten far enough in the fairies manga to see Clown Piece yet, so I really need to catch up on that. I really love her stage theme. God, it's so good. It really feels like you could go on a journey with it. I think we kind of covered her actual role in the plot. She's just a super boosted fairy sent to have fun on the moon and thus be a like living weapon against Lunarians. Yeah, so she's, I guess, the game's first example of what's actually happening on the moon. Before this point, the protagonists are just dealing with the Lunarian invasion force and going to the moon to be like, hey, cut it out, don't do this. And so this is the point in the plot where that turns around and we start dealing with the invasion of the moon itself. And Clown Piece is kind of, I guess, the... Vanguard. Yeah. She wears quite the ensemble. (laughs) (laughs) You hate America, right? Watch this. Yeah. (laughs) The thing we didn't talk about is that the Lunarians are not fond of America. Not many people are, I think, but um, the Lunarians... Not fond of America because America did what America does best and attempted to invade the moon. Yeah, so the Lunarians saw the 1969 moon landing as like a hostile invasion attempt, and I guess probably all like the probes and stuff before that that also landed on the moon. Maybe they just kind of assumed that probes are how Earth warfare works, which is why they sent the spider. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I wonder if it would have ended up being a war if the Apollo astronauts actually knew that... The lunar capital was there? Does the lunar capital have oil? (laughs) It has helium. (laughs) It has a lot of that. It also has kind of, you know, immortality elixirs. That's very true. Well, yeah, yeah, fair. I imagine it probably would have come down to a war just because the Lunarians already inter- interpreted the the moon landings as like an invasion. Yeah, and I think Zun is also making a subtle political point there with Clown Piece too, <laughs> besides the big one. Which is, you know, the US is very um, concerned with like openness. Japanese context, uh, a lot of that historically has been stuff like uh, Matthew Perry and the black ships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have the Lunarians as this very ultimately isolationist society that uh, closes itself off as much as possible. So you're going to see that kind of conflict almost inevitably because you have these irreconcilable worldviews and at least one of the parties involved are willing to use violence to uphold them. Definitely both, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I... I'm not sure if that's 
I'm not sure if that's intentional, yeah, but it could be viewed that way. Yeah, I think it's an interesting allegory, the whole Matthew Perry thing. Yeah, and I mean, there's... There's more, like, recent analogs, too, but, you know, the Matthew Perry thing is classy rather than immediately relevant today. Yeah, I think the part where it falls apart for me is just mostly the fact that the Lunarians are clearly China, not Japan. Hmm. Yeah, fair, but, I mean, not every piece of an allegory has to, like, match. Well, I had taken, like, five more minutes to think about this rather than uh, just blurting it out as I thought of it. The thing is, is that the U.S. policy with China for first half of the 20th century and so was called the open door policy. And it was all about um, trying to forcibly open up China so that instead of European powers competing for imperialist control of different sections, everybody would have the same opportunity to compete for imperialist control of all of China. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Equal opportunity pillaging. (laughs) Yeah. Oh shit, we gotta pillage some stuff. The other thing is that the invading forces of the fairies, like Junko and Hikatia's forces, are not really there. They're not really aggressive. Yeah, they're. To that degree, yeah. Yeah, like, this is all about revenge for Junko. I mean, you could make a point that we don't know whether Chang'e has done anything wrong. We just have Junko's idea of what happened. And you could blame Ho Yi for everything. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of ambiguities, like, in canon around the moon. I'm not going to, like, rattle anything off the top of my head, but I remember, like, coming to the personal conclusion that, like, some piece of, like, Lunarian lore was something where there was, like, an unambiguous retcon at some point. There's some pieces that are kind of hard to mess together in terms of what actually happened with the moon landing and all that. The moon landing is just, oh, you know, everything happened and everything also didn't happen. Going back to Clampus's outfit, like... The reason it's an American flag is because the Lunarians hate America. They view them as like a hostile invading force. And and so that's basically telegraphing, hey, I'm a hostile invading force. I just can't take the phrase hate America unironically anymore. <laughs> we are yeah. all hate America. <laughs> it's uh, kind of funny because obviously clone piece is like mimetically horrifying in the game. As a boss. Yeah, absolutely but, um, nightmare to deal with. She completely crushed my run for like three hours when I uh It's just it. like attempting to fight America. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's also got a very big I wanna be the guy reference in her attacks too. Oh really? Mm-hmm. In I wanna be the guy, when you fight Dracula, one of his <laughs> attacks is that he shoots the moon at you. Ah, <laughs> it's free moon. <laughs> when you fight Dracula, I have no idea what happens in that game. Uh, you fight six classic NES era game bosses in order to fight a seventh classic NES era game boss, and then fight a crudely MS painted pixel art boss. Okay, now how can we extend this ho- allegory to like all of Loki? <laughs> <laughs> Classic NES era boss does each Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom character represent? Well, Saogame is obviously Mike Tyson. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Clown Piece is like terribly hard, but at the same time, the protags in the dialogue have like trouble accepting that a fairy could be a real opponent. They're like treating her as a speed bump that they expect to, like, just swat aside and get to the real point. 
It turns out but that no. she's a speed mountain. So nightmares from Clown Piece aside. Actually, wait, I do think it's funny that her ability is driving people to madness because uh, fighting her is very <laughs> madness inducing. Mm. I really like her Damaku. We haven't really talked about Damaku so far. I really like how all of her spell cards have like a million lasers and then just like rain stars down on you. It's very pretty. The Damaku in this game has a very... It really excels at feeling like a space game. Yeah. I feel like the Danmaku in Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom was probably the best recent Danmaku has been at portraying basically what you're going into. Because I feel like I mean, no offense to Ten Desires and Double Dealing Character and Hidden Star in Four Seasons, but I feel like the Danmaku in those games exists more to be Danmaku than to be emotion. That sounds cheesy as all heck. What else about Clown Piece? The laser beams, like the ones that just full screen and then drop down on you. Ah, yes. The, the Gay Baby Jail spell card? Yes. <laughs> Like, that is, I think, my least favorite spell card ever in any game to play against. Mine too, I think. I've lost so many lives to that thing. There was, like, a Tumblr post that was just an abstract representation of the spell card that was just red bars across a black yield. It caused sheer horror at me. Yeah. I think we've just about covered Clown Piece. She's a very good girl. And we love her. I want to feed her curly fries. <laughs> um, she needs yeah. hamburger. That's the energy that Clown Piece has. She's just the ultimate daughter. Yeah, I mean, a more detailed clown piece discussion would probably take place if we ever do like a fairies episode in between all the ranting about Hirosaka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about clown pieces' moms then. Yeah. Mom time. <laughs> all four. <laughs> Before we get to Junko, I mean, not stage five, stage six, sorry. Stage five is great too, though, but like Junko's stage is absolutely beautiful like it's one of my favorite stages in any toho game i really love the constant like shooting star Maku just like raining down even though we're like on the moon and to me it kind of evokes the feeling of like being up in the atmosphere kind of yeah it feels like you're in a plane over the ocean yeah definitely mm. so which you know obviously is meant to represent like the apex of journey you know at the peak then you meet junko and she's actually amazing <laughs> Junko yeah. is actually my favorite character after Reimu and Marisa. I really love her a lot. So, her backstory. She was based on... She was based on Chinhu, a figure from Chinese mythology. Yeah. Who has a bad husband. Yeah, and Junko is basically just the Japanese reading of the same Margaret. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Toho seems to kind of combine like several maybe related but separate myths about people named Hoyi. Yeah, so there's at least two different Hoyis who have been just kind of conflated into one person for the purposes of this story. Hoyi was the person who usurped the previous ruler, killed him, and took Junko as his wife and killed her son also. Junko, well, like the original character Chunho, would then like get revenge on him by killing him along with the help of like his minister. And then in a separate myth, Hoji is... It's a different Hoji, by the way. Yeah, that's the thing. Is a archer who shoots down the, was it like extra eight moons, extra nine moons? Nine moons, or sorry, nine suns. 
nine Yatagarasus, or rather, nine yeah. three-legged sun crows, which are called Yatagarasu in Japan. Yeah, he shoots down the extra suns that are shining in the sky and, like, burning the earth, and leaves only the one that we have up there right now. I think Hecadia is mostly just like helping out Junko because she cares about Junko, but she also uses this whole sun shooting thing as an excuse. At least claims to be mad that Hoji also shut down Apollo. Yeah. Like the original Greek god. He was just hanging out up there and he got... (laughs) (laughs) It was just collateral fire, I guess. And so the Hoi who shot down the suns, that Hoi in legend married Chang'a. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who is the goddess of the moon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and I have a lot of weird speculation about Chang'a, about her being on the moon before the actual Lunarians, since she's never mentioned to be a Lunarian, but that's a topic for another day, probably. Yeah. So I'm not actually sure where which Hoi ends and which one begins in Toho, like where, because mm. they're both the same person in Legacy of the Lunatic Kingdom. If they are the same person, then that means that both Junko and Chang'e were his wives. Which, I mean, I guess that works. I'm not sure, like, how the timeline works. Like, is it just, like, a thing where Hoi killed Junko's previous husband, then also killed her son, and then took Chang'e as a wife, and Junko killed him? I guess it depends on if we assume the, like... Is the historical timeline accurate? Because if that is, then the Chang'e stuff comes in in the... It's mythological time, and then the Shunhu stuff is in early historical time. I, like, I think the Shia period, or the Shang period. So, But it's definitely within accepted like real history as opposed to mythical prehistory. Mm. When was that, anyway? Uh, which part, the Shia or the Shang? Well, either one. I don't really remember uh, the Chinese the, dynasty names by memory. Okay, so yeah, the uh, Shia is like late Bronze Age, so like about 2000 BC to 1100 BC. Yeah. And then Shang is like 1100 to 700, I think. I Don't mm. quote me on that. Please yeah, correct okay. me on that in the comments. <laughs> For the purposes of the timeline, it's basically taking time in the age of the gods, the like far distant past when gods still walked the earth and all kinds of like myths happened and probably a a bunch of the stuff in the Kojiki also takes place around the same time and it's kind of probably intended to be fuzzy. Not that we get a lot of detail on Junko's backstory anyway. Yeah, Junko is just kind of having therapy with her wife. Like... I'm wondering if, if there is an actual like bit of Toho lore that specifically mentions... Actually, okay, I'm looking at the omake.txt for Junko. So she had a grudge against Chang'e because her husband killed her child. But I guess she was involved somehow. So that means that Chang'e was married to Hoi before all of this went down. Mm-hmm. I think the timeline is Hoi left Junko for Chang'e, then Hoi killed Junko's son, and I have no idea what happened after that. He has to have shot the sons at some point, too. I think the timeline works like this. Hoi and Chang'e were already married for a super long time, because all of that stuff went down in prehistory. Then Hoi like usurped whatever the other guy was, the Shia dynasty guy. I don't actually know if he even has a name. Junko's original husband. He served him and he took Junko as another wife and also killed her son. 
Yeah, so he wouldn't be a claimant or something. Yeah, and so at this point, Junko is deeply traumatized by this, at the very least losing her child, and hellbent on vengeance. So she kills Hoi at some point, and then directs her energies towards destroying Chang'e. Yeah. That's about how I figure it. So Junko's ability is the ability to quote-unquote purify anything and just sort of make it its most pure form. So the story in Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom goes that she purified herself into just a being of pure vengeance and resentment towards Chang'e. And has spent however many years just purely focused on that and nothing else. I am not actually certain how much I like this interpretation. I don't like it. Because she definitely doesn't show a personality like that, especially in like Grimoire of Usami. Not really in the game. A lot of people's interpretation is just that she just like became this like rage monster that literally has no other goals or ambitions or is incapable of like being a person even. I feel like a much better interpretation is by taking that and sort of viewing it as a metaphor for trauma. Yeah, she basically purified her rage into something she could use as a weapon. It's not that she purified everything that wasn't rage out of herself permanently with no way of reversing it. It's just that sometimes when you are traumatized, it feels like you can literally feel nothing but rage. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm going to say something mildly tasteless and say that I think her revenge schemes, kind of like knitting, they're a hobby, a way to process her experiences Yeah, because I guess the person who actually traumatized her isn't really around anymore. It isn't really like vindicating her trauma to the same degree that it would be if she was being vengeful against Hoi. Yeah, Yeah. but also it is something that like obviously she associates Chang'e with all of this and partially blames her for it. So, I mean, it does make sense that she would want to destroy her because she still holds her responsible for the death of her child. Yeah, even if that's not necessarily the most logical thing, trauma doesn't exactly make you think logically. Yeah, exactly. Like, I was talking about this with somebody else a couple days ago, and they mentioned that they weren't really sure how, like, actually traumatic this event was to Junko, because, like, it's not as if this ancient Chinese noblewoman had, like, a pastoral 1950s marriage with a loving husband or whatever. Like, she was probably, like, a concubine. But I don't really think that necessarily means that she would not be traumatized by the loss of stability and the loss of her child. It shows up a lot both in history and tragically even in the present day the kind of idea that if you're just making your children to be heirs or if you're making a lot of children then you don't get attached to them. And they don't. Yeah. Re- they are. They aren't as important to you. And I. I. I really hate that idea. And especially like I haven't heard it like specifically applied to Chunko, but I can imagine why. I agree that the fact that she was a noble woman from a political point of view only had a child, so because she had to. I don't think that means that she wouldn't be traumatized by it. Yeah. And also, people can be traumatized by a lot of different things, and. Yeah. That just honestly seems like a 
non-nuanced understanding of trauma to me. We don't know anything about how it went down in the Ho-Ho canon, so even just the way that the events happened could have been traumatic in a whole bunch of ways. Yeah, exactly. And if I'm being honest, from all of my headcanons about Jinko and part of the reason why she's my like great character aside from the main characters is that all of this trauma stuff is in some small part like me just like projecting my own feelings about trauma onto Junko because there's a lot in her like in the way that she responds to all of the events that set Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom into motion that like makes sense to me from the perspective of trauma. So that's just basically the way I look at it is it's obviously a great deal of projection, but I do think that it is a perfectly valid interpretation that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It makes more sense as a story in Junko's case than like any other Toho character. And also I feel like it makes a lot more sense than, oh, she turned herself into a creature that just screams and doesn't feel any other emotions aside from getting really pissed off uh, Chang'e all the freaking time. How is she making friends? Like, how does she know Hikatia if she's just out there single-mindedly driven to destroying Chang'e, who is immortal, by the way? She drank the Horai elixir, which is a topic that I think we can get into a little bit later. Um, yeah, I think the whole like simplified Chunko, it's not even an interpretation really because it doesn't match with literally any of her appearances anywhere. It's edgy. It's the yeah. same level of meme that like old EOSD memes are, basically. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is unfortunate because some people are actually reading it as a valid interpretation because they haven't read the source material. Yeah, exactly. So, I guess this is the bit where we rail against the, the Western fandom again. I think we need to segue into Hecaria in the interest of time. So, Hecaria. Hecaria. The freaky t-shirt weirdo. Sometimes you just need to help somebody invade the moon to cope. <laughs> yes. Hecatia is by far the most interestingly designed Toho character, I think. <laughs> Junko is like out here in very very traditional Chinese I'm not sure what the outfit would be called but like she's wearing very very traditional Chinese clothing she looks so refined yeah, yeah. <laughs> refined you say like purified She's maybe the Toho character with, like, the outfit that is, like, the most, like, just an actual real outfit that, like, a person would wear in ancient China. Yeah. And then Hikatia has the outfit that an actual real person would wear if they were a 2017 kid. Yes. <laughs> she literally has a shirt that just says, welcome hell on it. Yeah. Welcome heart hell. Yes, and like the choker and the tricolor skirt, just absolutely outstanding. I love her design. Tragically, the whole fashion thing kind of turns into a huge meme with her too. Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom gets memed pretty heavily. Yeah, I really like Kakadia's outfit though. Like, I think it kind of sets up the whole reveal and alternative facts in Eastern Utopia about how she's, you know, on an entirely different level from anyone in Gensoki or the moon or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it just kind of shows that she just doesn't have to care about, like, looking refined or intimidating because the fact yeah. that she is literally a titan does that for her. She doesn't have to prove that she's stronger than random Oni or Kishin or whatever because everybody knows who she is and that she can sick her uh, 
attendance on you. Her girlfriend is also badass. Yeah. I think it's worth noting that in the extra stage of Lok Hayes that even after you defeat Junko or more like show up and Junko decides that she is tired and wants to go home, even then the invasion of the Earth doesn't stop. And the reason is that Hecaria is basically stopping the Lunarians from coming back from the dream world. In Junko's words, she sent Hecaria in as an assassin. <laughs> She rightfully assumes that Hecadia, if necessary, can just fight her way through the whole lunar capital to, air quotes, kill Chang'e. Yeah, it's canon that Hecadia... I truly despise power level discussions more than, like, any <laughs> other part of fandom, but it's a part of canon that Hecadia is just the strongest character in Toho that has been yeah. introduced in Toho. Way out there. On a completely different level from anyone else. So she's a very powerful ally to have for Junko, I guess. But, like, she's just helping Junko just because she's her friend. Yeah. Clown Peace calls Junko friend-sama. <laughs> That's yeah. very adorable. Yeah, that makes you assume that Hecaria just introduced her as friend. This is my friend. If that's what you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> Gal pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're... they're... <laughs> Between Junko, Hekatia, and Clown Peace, you have this, like, this small family dynamic thing going on. Hekatia is, like, all but explicitly, she is Clown Peace's mom in... Like, every time she's shown up, ever since Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom, it's basically been to be Clown Peace's mom. Yeah, like, in the fairies manga, she kind of treats Clown Peace like her daughter home from school. <laughs> <laughs> like she's just like oh you're messing around on good stuff you doing some mischief you're causing some trouble i'm proud of you yeah you're winning daughter <laughs> um yeah the reason she sends clown pit against Oki in the first place is because she thinks it's a better environment than hell yeah, so Hikakia is not really, despite being immensely powerful and thus at the top of the totem pole in the society of hell, she is not very fond of that system. And her big thing is wanting just like everyone to have the freedom to live their own lives the way that they want to live them. And so she's not really into the whole might makes right thing. She doesn't want Clown Peace to grow up in that environment. So she just kind of packs her away and sends her to boarding school to live under Rainbow's house. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, Clown Peace lives under Rainbow's house now. And she accidentally set it on fire a little bit before Rainbow told her, no, you can't do that. Yeah. I guess the other thing... Junko's relationship with Hikaria is one of the things that I think indicates that, you know, Junko isn't actually like a singularly focused vengeance monster because they seem to have a pretty good relationship. Like, they obviously hang out. In Grimoire of Usami, like, Hikaria brings Junko along as her plus one to the fireworks festival. The Grimoire of Usami also, you know, sort of points to Junko having more depth than what she is commonly understood to have. Like, she shows up and, like, she starts doing this, like, telling Danmaku, and I think Okina is like, I knew that inviting the goddess of hell was a good idea or something like that, because she's very interested in seeing, like, this, like, mad woman pop off. Um, <laughs> like, everyone gets a little scared, and then Junko's like, oh, I'm just kidding. You guys have fun. Junko is just such a fun mom. Like, she and Hikatia both have extreme mom energy. Their relationship is really good and it's one of my favorite ships in Toho. It makes me happy. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think it's another, like, it's one of those ships everyone agrees with, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. I mean, and again, it's partly because they don't really have any other obvious pair-ups. It's also because it's so good. The most direct counterpart to them in other Toho games is the Moria family, which also has like yeah. a sort of similar family dynamic where you have like these two very powerful beings and their adorable daughter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Kanasu is about as like default a ship as Junheka is. Yeah. I think. Yeah, people can just recognize mom on mom relationships. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes the people that help you deal with your trauma and move on from losing your whole life and family and just give you a second chance at life are a goddess who shops at Hot Topic and a clown. Sometimes that's all you need. The other thing about Hecatia is that her interview in Alternative Facts in Eastern Utopia is really good and she just kind of directly becomes Zun's mouthpiece to just kind of rail against America for a little while. And I appreciate that about her. <laughs> she just talks about like closed borders policies are ineffective and garbage and make a society weaker. And I think that's also interesting to consider in light of the Alternative Facts interview with her. I think that kind of puts a little more perspective on her actions on the moon as well. It's also Zoon hitting you over the head times 60 with his political views. Which I don't mind because they're good political views. Yeah, it is very much that. But I think it also puts into perspective, like, maybe part of the reason that she is helping Junko out is just that she views the Lunar Kingdom as the same sort of, like, isolationist society and wants to start something with them. Yeah, she very much rails against it, too. Lunarian society is essentially a microcosm of everything that Hakadia hates. Basically, mm. yeah. Although, I don't know if they really have the strong versus the weak ideology so much. Rabbits. I guess so. It is stratified in that sense, but, I mean, I'm probably taking it too literally, probably not as flexible in the sense that, like, the strong rule the weak system, as it works in hell, at least has the idea that if one of the weak turns out to be strong, then they'll be the new boss. On the moon, it's very much, it's always been the same exact bosses and the same exact underlings, and nobody expects it to ever change. Yeah, it's... Zun, I think, is also being very uh, anti-corporate life here, too, just like he is whenever he brings up the Tengu. Yeah. You know, everything is arranged perfectly for you, but that means you never have to do anything, and your entire life is stuck within a box where you can't create your own doujin games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know. Speaking of that, he did like a thing the other day with... With the company he used to work for. Yeah, with Taito, the company that employed him and told him to quit making Toho games and work on their stuff. How the turns have tabled. Yeah. Well, they actually told him to give Reimu and the Toho copyright to them. Oh, I see. Which is probably a good bit more insidious than just telling him to stop making Toho games. Yeah, very much. I'm very glad that he managed to leave and find his own success with Toho. To the point where now he gets to just like share a stage on a, um, like, I don't what it was like a show or something? Tokyo Game Show, wasn't it? Yeah. It's like a local E3, <laughs> I think. Japanese E3. Like, share a stage with them at Japanese E3 as, like, an individual instead of somebody who's working for them. Like, what a success story. What a king. He is <laughs> such a dude. Oh, yeah. We stand. I think we need to start wrapping up a bit. 
I do want to spend a little bit more time talking about... We never really finished discussion of the actual plot. And like, That's true. Yeah. yeah, but it kind of just falters off. Yeah, like the invasion <laughs> fails and Junko and Hikaria are just like, well, that's all right. We'll try again or something. Like That's not what they said, but like just kind of the attitude that they had. Yeah, they did say that Junko didn't accept the terms that she would never attack the moon again. She said that she won't attack the moon for a while. Yeah. There's like one specific line in one of the endings, I think, that stood out to me about Junko when the plan failed, which was like she felt at ease about her plan being kind of destroyed. She wasn't furious about losing. And I guess part of that just comes from the fact that she's been doing this for a really long time. She knows she can always try again. Uh, You could certainly interpret it that way. But also, I think it's also pointing to like a part of her that has just kind of moved on to acceptance of the situation and just like trying to move on from the whole situation that got her here in the first place, like focusing on the present more. Isn't it also specified that they've already attacked several times in the past? I think Hecardia is the one who mentions that. That's one, we have infinite time. Yeah, basically. Like, so it is a thing where, like, they can always try again. I do think it is interesting that she... It is another thing that points to the fact that, like, she's being, like, kind of rational about this instead of just being, like, like losing her mind uh, about the yeah. fact that her plan failed or whatever. We never talked about the freaking weird pill that Aaron made that explains point device mode away. Aaron's actual shady drug. <laughs> <laughs> To sum it up really short, the whole point device mode in the game is explained by the fact that Erin's feeding you this special drug that lets you see a short way into the future, which is why every time that you died is like retroactively just a vision, and then you go back in time to the last checkpoint and try again. Yeah, and it's also like the non-canon route because of that. Yeah. Canon route is just beating it on legacy mode. The canon route is just being miraculous, which makes me think that Sanai is a very cool choice to pick for your player character for the game. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, I think Kanako mentions in one of the endings that she's actually really impressed that Sanai did that. (laughs) I think Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom is also the point where Zun starts to feel restricted by the spell card rules a bit mm. um, because Junko does not play by the spell card rules and just makes Damaku that is meant to be like super hard and try to hit you and kill you. The next couple of games have also sort of shied away from the spell card rules or like avoided mentioning them basically. Yeah, but they've obviously been a part of the gameplay. Yeah, like the concept of the spell card rules that everyone agrees to and plays by is something that Zun has been feeling somewhat restricted by, and this is the point where that really becomes a problem for the first time, I think. Yeah. There's been a couple in the past, like, some that people point to, like, how does Byakuren know what the spell card rules are and stuff like that, but yeah, I think this is the big example of people who not only shouldn't know the spell card rules, but also have no interest in using them. The spell card rules are definitely used in setting, because we have stuff like Antonomy of Common Flowers, where the entire basis for Joan and Chian's plan is based off of the spell card rules, but it's also like, if you leave Gensokyo, you're gonna just have to deal with whatever's not in Gensokyo. Yeah, so the explanation for why they don't, there's no spell card rules in Valkyrie, or like, why would Junko follow the rules is just, like, 
probably she doesn't actually really, and the girls are just it's that just, good. It's just the gameplay. It's just Remu, Marisa, Sane, Reisen. They were all just that good. They just won. Anyway, I think we need to move to the mailbag. We're, we don't have any mail this week, but um, we got a question about do the hosts have any Tumblrs or Twitters? Not unless you can prove it. Yeah. I tweet at uh, at Corindo, K-O-R-I-N-D-O. <laughs> <laughs> the connection up here on the Torifune is kind of bad, so we use up most of our broadband making this podcast. We can't really afford stuff like tweeting every day. <laughs> we can make one tweet a day, but we all have to share it. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, so I think as far as like social media goes, yeah, most of us post on other websites or whatever. We're not really like about about that life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're not really here to like bug that. I guess I don't have any problem with sharing my own Tumblr or anything like that, but I'll probably just do that on the blog instead of here. Yeah, and in general, we're like open to answering a bit more questions on the Tumblr or Twitter. Just not anything too personal, obviously. Yeah. yeah. We're just not really interested in talking about ourselves, I guess. This is a podcast about Toho. This is not a podcast about five people making a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Until we decide that it is. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) Join us next week where we talk about uh, making a podcast together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyway. This has been Outside World Occultism and cutting off for this week. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye.